If I could describe to get my life tour in one word, it would be vulnerability. Showing up for yourself is so important. Welcome to the Get My Life Tour. I'm your host, Lydia T. Blanca. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the Get My Life Tour. It is me, your host, Lydia T. Blanco. And as always, I'm hype. I'm excited. I am so grateful that you decided to show up for yourself and join me right here, center stage on the Get My Life Tour. If this is your first time, welcome. My goodness, I'm so glad that you're here. And if this is your 30th time or your second time, or you know what I'm saying? I don't know however many times you've been here, I appreciate each and every time that you decide to show up. It is no small feat that you are vulnerable, that you are willing to listen with your heart and to learn from so many of the great individuals who have graced the stage. So thank you. Y'all, this season has been I'm about to sound so old, off the chain, okay? And it is because people are really showing up and showing out in ways that I've prayed for, in other ways that I literally have not imagined. And I'm so amped about today's guest because I've actually seen him on my timeline on Twitter before. And this man has gone viral, not because of any fluff, Right, but because of the thought provoking conversations and criticisms, quite honestly, that he has offered to society as a black man. Okay, let me tell you something. Y'all know I'm real hype about black men doing great things. They say that they don't exist or they're hard to find. We've heard these jokes about unicorns and magical Negroes, but let me tell you something. Cyrus McQueen is the real deal. He is a comedian, a cultural critic, a writer who is killing it, okay? He is also an author, and I can't wait to tell you more about his book. But before I go on and on, I'd like to introduce and welcome, help me welcome, better yet, Cyrus McQueen to the Get My Life Tour. Cyrus, what's up? What is up? What a wonderful, wonderful introduction. <laughs> My goodness, you got me over here blushing, girl. <laughs> and I'm Black, so that's hard to do. So thank you, you know very what? much for the introduction. <laughs> you are more than welcome. I'm so, I really am thrilled that you are here. The first time we connected, I was like, okay, I'm adopting this man as my big brother. I like love having black male mentors, all these things, right? And mm-hmm. we hit it off. It's so funny you say that because I felt I could learn a lot from you when I was talking to you. I was like, <laughs> like she should be my mentor because he's dropping jewels like a like a like a thief out of a jewelry store. Like you were just dropping gems left and right. And I just it was such a heartwarming uh, discussion that you and I had, and it felt like we were fast friends. And, you know, you meet those people every now and again, and you feel like you've known them for years, but yeah. you've only known each other for like 45 minutes. <laughs> it was one of those, it was one of those uh, fast friends experiences. So thank you, Lydia. Thank you. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I received that. So thank you. Cyrus, you are many things. Many And I don't want to just limit you to, like, your bio and these experiences unbeknownst to me. So 
Tell us who you are in your own words. Um, I would have to say that I'm merely a spiritual, sentient human being, uh, a proud black man, a child of God, my grandmother's grandson, my mother's son, out here doing his best, trying to honor them, honor my legacy, honor my place in this world, and you know, slowly coming to the real realization that my life is of consequence and that our time here is certainly finite and precious, especially given everything that's going on in the world. So I'm a man who's woken up to his blessings and is still waking up to his blessings and recognizing that on a daily basis, um, especially now in times where, you know, if you do have any faith, it's certainly been tested this past year, certainly even in 2021, um, given everything that's happened in just less than a month. Um, but I'm just a spiritual man, a truth teller, doing my best to, you know, hook up with the muses and share. <laughs> I guess I want to I want to expand my garden so that I could feed more people. Um, in so many words, that's that's who I am. Just a child of God, baby. Just a child of God. <laughs> Just like you. Yes, I know that's right, okay? Mm. Look, they know. They know. Yeah. I am a spiritual gangster out here in these streets. I actually just got a t-shirt that says that, and I'm really... I love it. I love it. it. <laughs> you know, I'm taking notes right now as we talk, because you are already coming out the gate swinging, sir. Please. Mm. We have to make it through this stop of the tour, okay? <laughs> you said you are waking up to your blessings. I know somebody got that. Like I, I'm writing that down because mm. I'm taking that with me. It speaks to me. Waking up to your blessings. What does that mean? It yeah, sounds so good. Well, it's one of those things, you know, my grandmother, you know, who I wrote about and who, you know, I sent you an excerpt in the book talking about her. She's full of these sayings that, you know, for years they've just sort of flowed over me. A lot of times I've dismissed them, um, but most of the time they've penetrated. And, you know, one of the things that she's always said, that's a, popular refrain in my own family is that you do not block your blessings. Mm -hmm. um, and I find too many of us, you know, we, we're in communities of crisis. We come from crisis. We were brought here in crisis. We nourish ourselves on crisis, whether we realize it or not. And so where America has sort of, you know, depressed us religiously, assiduously, we ourselves have to take note of how we've contributed to that voiding. And for me, part of my growth is recognizing that I can't be complicit in my own degradation anymore. And part of blocking the blessings is by being complicit in your degradation, whether you realize it or not. And that's surrounding yourself with things that don't serve you, things that um, detract from your spirit, detract from your journey. Um, and, you know, whether it be behaviors or even people that we choose to populate our worlds with, um, learning who serves you and who doesn't is tantamount to whether or not you block the blessings or not. Your grandmother, the way you wrote about your grandmother in tweeting truth to power, so honorable. Mm. Oh my goodness. I feel like she just was a noble being. Is she still mm. with you? Oh yes, very okay. much so. 86 okay. and kicking in yes. St. Louis. I, I... It was just like, goodness, I hope somebody writes about me this way. I have something that I highlighted. Um, I won't go there just yet, but okay. I'm almost lost for words. Number one, you are a phenomenal writer. 
my goodness. I'm like, come on. Silas. Thank you, sis. Really? Thank you, sis. Thank I, you, sis. I'm, I'm looking at your sentences and the structure and the, di- the diction and everything else. And I know that you're a cultural critic. I know that you're a writer, all these things. But I'm like, whoa, how long did it take for you to sit down and create this, this art that you call a book? Uh, well, let's, let's, let's factor in the time that I, I took avoiding it. Okay. <laughs> That's I, probably, I probably could have written it a lot faster. I thought about writing this book for about a year before I did it. And this ties into a larger discussion we can have about um, blocking your blessings. Mm. Um, but the book itself, the actual writing process took me a little over two years. I started in July of 2018 and I, put down the last period in August of 2020. So two, yeah, just over two years wow. of intense, intense focus day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did it. It was one of those things, you know, I think I can't, I'm humble. I'm, I'm humble to the point that I can't declare that this is a great towering achievement just yet, but I know what I put into it. And um, I, the book wrote itself. I just put it that way. I don't want to take too much credit for that. I feel when you avail yourself to the muses, we come from such a rich tradition and we're so close to that ether, that spiritual sort of, um, uh, you know, a source of inspiration that if you really are silent and still enough and reverential enough that the muses will speak to you. And I felt that I had them tapping me on my damn shoulder for a year and, <laughs> You know, if I'm being honest with myself, I think a lot of it was, you know, for, for many, many years, I was ignoring what I should be doing um, mm. because I've been told I was a great writer since I was a young, young, young kid, like when I was, you know, in high school. Um, but again, you adopt behaviors. And sometimes, you know, as Nelson Mandela says, your light can be more fearful than your darkness. Mm. And if I'm being real with myself, you know, I delayed the reconciliation with myself a little too long. Sir, you speak in soliloquy. You are this poet and you don't even claim it. This is amazing. You are amazing. You know, I want to know what the meantime looked like for you that year when the muses were tapping you on your shoulder. What did it look like? Um, What did it feel like? What did you experience as you prolonged the process? Well, you know what it is, is, you know, uh, I, I became prolific at Twitter and, you know, Twitter at one point, it was 140 character limit mm-hmm. that you had to work with. Then it expanded to 280 characters. But, you know, I initially got into it because I was a stand-up comedian. I am a stand-up comedian. And, you know, what was unfolding out of DC was so unnatural, just so, even given America's torches history, what we were seeing, what we were living through was so serious you know, as I wrote in my book, I just realized that a lot of shit just isn't funny, mm. especially at this time. And if I, you know, want to take a more holistic approach, it's like I am alive for a reason. Right. Our lives are of consequence. We're here for a reason. And if we're here during a time when, you know, heaven and earth are being upended, you know, a time of coronavirus, a time when, you know, even before men can march into the Capitol and, and try to reclaim something that was never taken from them, this sort of dual reality that we're living through. If I am being honest with myself, then I was here. I am here for a reason. And like Toni Morrison said, my duty as a black writer is to document. It is to bear witness. And 
I'm sitting in a basement, you know, of a comedy club telling jokes at midnight. And it just felt like, am I honoring my best self? Am I really doing what I was supposed to be doing, what I am supposed to be doing right now? And so that was me, you know, I just was unfulfilled and things got too damn serious Mm. for me to keep spitting silly jokes in a microphone or putting up silly videos, you know? Uh, And the fact that they spoke to me, Maybe that's of consequence. Maybe that is a reason. Maybe I heard those voices for a reason. And like I say, I was the conduit to bring it into the world. You know, I'm happy that I sat my ass down. I put down the microphone. I put down the damn phone Mm. and I picked up a pen and I started bearing witness, you know? Yeah. You know, a few things come to me and that's moral compass, agency, Mm -hmm. and maturity. Right. Not to say that your moral compass was imbalanced, that you were immature and that you had no sense of agency. But. As artists, as creators, as just black people in this country, we are often called higher than our counterparts. And I believe it's partly because we are the original people and you know, with us being spiritual beings, like you said, a lot of stuff is just not funny, right? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting how we often have to take ourselves more seriously. And while it has, um, while some people think it has nothing to do with us, it has everything to do with like us Mm -hmm. and how we are made of, right? Like our foundation. Mm -hmm. We come from rich stuff, really, really rich soil. And like I said, we've dealt, we've been dealt such a, a destructive hand, such an mm. awful hand. And that was only getting worse. That really was, we were living in a heightened crisis. And, you know, I can't begrudge other people of color, my other, my fellow performers, my fellow strivers, because we all are battling the current in America. But my life felt of consequence for the first time. And I knew what we were seeing wasn't normal. A lot of our existence hasn't been normal. But this, it was so magnified, uh, Lydia, you know, just living what we just lived through with this fool. Um, mm. pouring salt in the wound. Wounds that never healed. You're ripping out the stitches and pouring salt in them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I couldn't look myself in the mirror. I could not consider myself a man if I <laughs> kept making stupid ass jokes yeah. <laughs> at the expense of, I could not, I could no longer sacrifice uh, levity for clarity. That's the point. I can no longer sacrifice levity for clarity. I'm glad you said it twice because I was going to ask you to say it again, but you read my mind. You know, I want to, I want to really go there with you, Cyrus, because there are a lot of high paid, well-meaning artists in your world, in our world. And I don't know if they're tone deaf if they are whitewashed, if they are color struck, color struck, (laughs) so oblivious, they have no sense of agency. And I really wonder if it's because they think they've arrived, that they don't have to pay attention to everything that's going on around them. I'm not going to call any names or anything, but a few people come to mind. And you know, who also um, comes to mind is Nina Simone, right? Her artistry 
and the oh, way yes. she lived her life and so many of her contemporaries and those who who um, came before them mm-hmm. who were very serious about being vocal about the time that they were living in and making, mm-hmm. you know, their money or their millions, mm-hmm. you know, depending on how we want to convert currency and all that other stuff historically, right, as it relates to economics. Mm-hmm. But do you think that your agency, mm, I'll say it, you don't have to, uh, you can correct me, right? But do you think your agency is um, stronger because you aren't, and I'm using air quotes for those who can't see us, right? Um, mm-hmm. Aren't one of the highest paid comedians um, because you aren't Hollywood per se, even though you've graced the stage at NBC and done so many great things. Do you think if you were at that level, you'd have the same sense of agency? Yeah, mm. absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. I don't want to curse, but absolutely, <laughs> even more so if I had the, you know, the, the proven economic weight of, of, of a box office behind me, because, you know, money dictates and sort of consumes all thinking and all sorts of, you know, business decisions. Um, yes, absolutely. That's your duty as an artist, a true artist, I believe. Mm. You know, I look at the unapologetic truth tellers like I mentioned in my book of Richard Pryor, who is my my guiding star in so many ways, and then the, the deliciously defiant warriors in the present day, in like the form of a Chris Rock or a Dave Chappelle. I mm. feel like they have found their lane, and they haven't compromised who they are. So it is doable. Um, but for me, the fact that I don't have a lot of these things. Um, Maybe that happened for a reason in, in terms of me having the agency and also the time more than anything to mm. really sit down and write this book. I didn't have a lot of things pulling at me. Also, the fact that we were living through this pandemic, that was another uh, starter for me. I'm like, well, if you don't do it now, fool, right. <laughs> with all this time you now have on your hand that you really uh, are faking the funk and misrepresenting yourself. So um, I think that a lot of us, we court white acceptance we are almost programmed that way we also i know programmed to self-destruct as i alluded to earlier we're programmed to fight each other out you know i i talk about my experiences growing up in the inner, inner city and being bused to white suburbs and those who um essentially embodied the disguise it's like i put on the mask for a few hours a day while i had to deal and do what i had to do but then there were others who lived in that community and they chose to almost embody the disguise and mm-hmm. so I talk about the battle royal, like the one-on-one basketball game that I had with one of my contemporaries who live metaphorically and literally in the white suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a byproduct of coming here and the social engineering, which has only benefited a, a certain few and certainly not our, our, our ranks. And so I, I, as I'm getting older, I try not to fault those who are looking for that gratification, that validation from a white America's embrace um, but I myself having never received it, mm, that's <laughs> perhaps, deep. I, perhaps, perhaps I, I haven't fostered this delusion that others have, you know, mm. I've been battling the current, even now writing this book, every little, mm. every little thing I get, I've, I've, I've put muscle into it. Um, I have yet to experience that invigorating breath of American prosperity <laughs> uh, as others have, but I mean, that's, that comes back to uh, the point I really wanted to make Lydia and is that, you know, we are living in a heightened moment and you know, coming up in a community where I know so many people who didn't make it to 20, um, mortality 
my own has been paramount. And certainly it's the Jekyll sitting on my shoulders. So I don't operate under any delusions that I will get another book, that I'll have time to write another book, that this, you know, expatiation that I've, 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 I've laid out there will, will, you know, lead to more. Um, but we're living in a time of heightened mortality. You know, coronavirus is just like, it's taking the draft number of your neighbor, your bartender, your barber. It's like, if anything, this time that we are navigating through this perilous, perilous American moment, and I guess you could say a global moment, um, it's proven that we cannot take anything for granted. Um, so that being said, I knew that I had to do something because I don't know if I'm going to, none of us knows if we're going to get another tomorrow or next week or next month to pick up the thing we've been delaying thus far. Mm. You know, it's so important to use your time wisely so you don't die with your gifts. Mm-hmm. Word up. You know, I would be so disappointed. I don't know how I experience it, but I would be so disappointed if I died with my gifts. You just mm-hmm. challenged me to continue to be on top of my game. Sister, you you are doing it. So <laughs> don't don't you worry. You are doing it. I, I stand by. I bear witness to your greatness and the fact that you put it all together and you created this platform um, for the people who are listening and the people who have yet to even listen. You know what I mean? Like I write this book. I say, uh, you know, I may just be writing for eyes that have yet to open. Mm. You know, I reckon I, I don't care about sales. Like I didn't even get a book deal. <laughs> I just started writing. Mm. I didn't let anybody tell me no, because I knew a no was going to come. And Mm -hmm. I've lived long enough in this American experiment to know that they will like, you know, there's two N words that we suffer from as a people. And that's nigga and no. Mm. No is the modern equivalent. They can't wait to tell you no. Mm. Mm. So I picked up the damn pen. It's like anybody, if, if the truth hits you as an artist, you have to, you have to be so grateful when it hits you, you pick up the paintbrush, you pick up the chisel, you get you a rock, or you pick up the pen. You just have to produce at that point. Um, and so that was that was my motivation, and you know that's what got me here. Cyrus, yo, okay, look, I have so much I want from you. Okay, so I'm gonna go back to this this book because. You you really did that. I'm so glad you weren't waiting around for anyone. I feel like sometimes we wait and we just delay everything that the world is waiting for, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way you talk about history, the way that you wrote about your grandmother and her story, I am just wild, right? You are a cultural critic and your criticism is needed, Okay. Um, you spoke so eloquently about the times that we're living in. And it's so interesting how um, in your book, you wrote about history, but we know history repeats itself. And this, what I've um, extracted just is really telling them that you wrote, when discussing history, often portray the past using Sophia tones. I hope I said that correctly. Like certain photographs, mm. this rose-colored hue can distort glossing over those more, oh, excuse me, those more problematic and unsparing aspects producing, oh my gosh, a bygone era to one-dimensional self-serving, appraisal and effort to sell an inauthentic yet more palatable picture. 
Look, I can go on and on, but what we've seen has been that over the last four years, and I want to claim our forever, right? Our uh, existence here in this country. What, what made you begin to question politics and history and life as we know it? I think I've, in, in fairness, you know, I went to college um, and I got a degree in political science and journalism. So politics has always been a, a special focus of mine. Um, it really was observing Obama, as I write about early in the book, and something that none of us thought was imaginable. You know, we've been tethered <laughs> by race for our, our, our existence on this on this planet. And to see one of our own throw those tethers off and soar was truly magical. So the fact that my nephew and my niece, like that's the reality. They were born into a world with a black president. You and I grew up in a time where mentioning <laughs> that could prompt an eye roll from the elders. Yeah, all right, whatever. Yeah, yeah, like they're really, like there's ever gonna be a black president. Yeah, come on, whatever. <laughs> um, but it was really that, that juxtaposition and seeing this malevolent, cruel, just cruel man who tried to malign and undermine the first black president, because he is so insecure, so, I call him so impotent as a man. That galvanized me more than anything, seeing what was unfold. And, you know, we've got white contemporaries and even a lot of black folks who just ain't paying attention. Um, but I, in this interest, I'll, I'll speak to some of our, our liberal and well-meaning uh, white contemporaries who were just like, did not recognize ultimately how bad this was going to be or the portent that a Donald Trump represented. And like I said, when you have no skin in the game, it's easy to just sort of like, all right, I can rest on my laurels. I could do a protest vote or whatever. I could just sit out this election. But I saw a storm. I saw a storm brewing. And that sort of like, you know, for years, I was probably delaying, you know, or I wasn't uh, nourishing my more serious side, because I guess I was a comedian, I was just making jokes, silly jokes, making people laugh. Um, But it was just so serious what I saw coming, the, the, the storm forecast, as you will, mm-hmm. that um, I was like, okay, I need to maybe start incorporating more comedy or more, I'm sorry, more politics into my routine. And then that game to the point where it's like, well, no, I just need to just speak about this. I, I'm not, a lot of comedians, you know, a lot of folks will try to be on all the time and they're just waiting to make that next joke and crack jokes and be funny. Um, for me, I realized it's like, well, I, I can sacrifice the punchline because I don't care about entertaining you right now. If I can make you think, mm-hmm. if I can make you sort of look at something a little more deeply than you otherwise would have, then, you know, comedy is something I do. It's not who I am. It's like I said, I'm a child of God. I'm a spiritual man. That's who I am at base. I do comedy. I happen to write, but I am a spiritual, sentient, conscientious objector to the vicissitudes and changes that are just destroying centuries of progress for my people. You know what yes. I'm saying? So if you see centuries of progress in peril, why the hell are you spitting silly, nonsensical jokes into a microphone? Again, everybody has a role to play. I'm not begrudging anybody else, but I knew me. I couldn't live with myself if I did not listen to that voice and say, no, 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 let's address this. Use your platform. You've got this many followers. And then what I found is, you know, as I started just like a, a, a abandoning the punchline and just spitting fire, what I thought, my, my, my salient uh, opinions and 280 characters, 
then I started to get a bigger following and then more people started following. And then I started seeing, you know, some of my comments landing in publications. I was like, all right, well, I'm not even trying to entertain necessarily. Um, I'm just, the truth is just knocking the upside the head girl. So I was like, you know, what? <laughs> that's what it was. Truth was knocking the upside the head. Your, your truth, your truths and your gifts made room for you. Like, this is what I really appreciate about the idea of this tour, right? Us approaching the mic in ways that we had not before, right? Um, taking center stage on one uh, stop of the tour, I talked about using all of the room on the stage and how fitting now that I think about it. I opened up with how Mike Epps, when watching this uh, comedy special, was using all of the stage. And I just referred to a number of people when they come out, it's not enough to just stand there. Like a Dave Chappelle, he can stand there now, right? We're like, okay, Dave, you're gonna stand there, you're gonna smoke mm. your cigarette. But mm. it's different because of the information that he's sharing, that he's delivering. Like his delivery is just different. Then you have those who use mm. every inch of the stage, even Beyonce, right? When she comes out, we're like, okay, Beyonce is about to work it. We don't mm. even know how she does all of this while singing and breathing and dancing at the same time, right? I say all of that to say mm. that we have to make a choice about how we are going to show up and what mm. our stage presence is going to mean to those not only in the room, but those who get a glimpse, right, of what was said or what was shared mm -hmm. um, on that mm -hmm. stage. The fact Well, like that, I said, like, yeah. I said, oh, sister, you said it. You absolutely, that's exactly what I've tried to articulate to so many people. Like, you cannot make yourself small. You have to take up space. It's like, you know, you could be strategic about it. It's like, I don't want to ruffle feathers. You know, I don't want to step on any toes because I want to <laughs> get mine. But at the end of the day, do you, we are people who we demand the space that's been denied us. Mm. You know what I mean? It's not like, a, it's not like a, please let me in. It's like, no, as Tupac said, I'm kicking the door down at this point because <laughs> I've been left out for so long. My people have been left out for so long. Um, you know, the, one of the things that this book, you know, it, it caused me to do is it made me look back at the last four years. Like we just talked about the last four years, which have certainly been problematic and, you know, rich in terms of, you know, just content and fodder to discuss. Um, but then it caused me, because I turned 40 while I was writing this book. So, you know, I look back at the last 40 years, but then it was also forced me to look back at the last 40 of my life and all my experiences. I grew up in the inner city of Boston. And like I said, I was born um, and raised pretty much in Roxbury, which is, you know, right in the inner city of mm -hmm. Boston. But then I was bused to schools in the suburbs. So I experienced with Du Bois' dissertation on double consciousness early, mm -hmm. early on. Um, I was this, surfing this dual reality. I was shuttled between two extremes, like the excesses of white wealth and trickle-down economics and Reaganomics in the 80s to, you know, the exacerbating, cratering epidemic of crack cocaine in Roxbury. Mm -hmm. So I, I have this, you know, my mother, I was talking to her the other day, and she's like, you know, those experiences, like she's known friends and ch and children of friends who have become schizophrenic because they were shuttled between these two extremes. It's um, so we are already living through this trying existence. And so I look back to the last 40 years and then, I've, of course, it was 2019. And that was the 400th anniversary of a setting foot in Jamestown. So I've looked back at the last four years. 
Consequently, I then looked back at the last 40, and then that then of course made me look back at the last 400 um, of black existence. And it all comes together. There's a through line. We are part of a continuum, uh, Sister Lydia. We are part of a rich continuum. And we just have to keep telling our story. Mm. Y'all, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What is the world going to do with Cyrus McQueen? Like, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with Mr. McQueen? Oh my gosh, you are such a brilliant mind. You are a God sent. Uh, you are welcome. You're really, pretty special your damn self. <laughs> look, I appreciate it, but I'm just, I'm so grateful for what you are sharing, mm-hmm. you know? I always am eager to hear from more black men. Like that's just the truth. I'm always eager. I'm like, okay, let me make sure I'm following this person. Let me listen to this podcast. Let me read what someone has written. Let me see who is being featured. Black men have so much to offer. And in this season of the Get My Life Tour, it has been really important for me to make room for black men. And I'm very honest about that. You know, the first two seasons, everybody's like, oh, we're listening. We're here. You know, when are you going to let me come on? I'm like, okay, just one second, one second. You know, I, w- I want to set the stage, right? Um, <laughs> it's so interesting how, you know, women, you know, really lay out the table for our, our men, our brothers, right? Our loved ones. And that's what I wanted to do, right? I wanted to create a space for you to come in and just, just, okay, have your way. All right. Right. Um, and the way you have shown up speaks for itself. Thank you, sis. Oh my goodness. Okay. Now, Thank you me, know sis. what? You are welcome. We're not done just yet. It's, it, look. Hey, you, you and I can keep rapping as long as, you know, <laughs> <laughs> my computer stays charged. We can do this. Okay. That was just my little <laughs> PSA. But I want to talk about what happens when Black men stop asking for permission. Mm. Mm. Short answer, Cyrus McQueen. You get the answers. (laughs) You get the yes. When you stop asking for permission, when you say yes to yourself, that's really the only person that, uh, the only permission you need. Uh, Not to sound too trite, but uh, yeah, once you stop asking for permission, you, you get a yes. Talk to um, your brothers. Talk to your brothers. Um, a lot of us, we we court the validation. The I call it the um, the the frugal gaze of the other. Um, but I learned that in a country like ours, in an existence like ours, in a continuum like we have, um, tethering your aspirations to your countrymen's improvement is imprudent. That was one of the. That's not my jack the right moment, but that put that at the, that was right towards the end of my book because I was like. I'm telling you, like, like two years of intense focus. I'm talking like I'm getting out of bed, you know, to type things into my phone. I'm like, it's like it was it, a lot of times it was drudgery. Writing is, is drudgery, but it's also, you know, it can feel like you're rowing and other times it feels like you're sailing. Um, but that came to me in the middle of the night and it, and it, it was something that I had to put towards the end of the book. Um, the denouement to my tales of, of disrespect and disregard. Um, tethering your aspirations to your countrymen's improvement is imprudent. So maybe I'll look back at an 18th century philosopher like Voltaire. I had to go back to Voltaire. And what was the, what was that, what was the edification of Candide was to tend your own garden. 
So we as a people, um, so this is certainly, it's a, it's a burden to some and uh, certainly a, 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 a need that we, that we have. We have to help cultivate and nourish each other. So if we have opportunities and there are those who are fertile, we have to help them grow. And as a people, we can't keep looking or expecting the white world. Because like I said, I'm 40 years old. I never, I never got it. I sure as hell I ain't never gotten that validation, that invigorating breath of American prosperity. Uh, so I'm like, well, damn it, I'll just start, I'm gonna start cultivating my own garden. And if anything, I know I'll, I'll at least be able to feed myself. But the end I'll be on is I'll be able to feed a lot more people. Um, as I also write about, you know, we come from a, a slavery sharecropping tradition. So, you know, my people were tending, tending land and tending soil in Tennessee, you know, not to give too much away, but I discovered like I have a very ignoble um, family ancestor. Uh, I don't want to give it away because it's a bit of a surprise in the book towards the end and my own little Alex Haley, you know, bootleg <laughs> computer Alex Haley uh, family <laughs> research. I discovered something really, really fucked up. Um, but the long and the short of it is we have to tend our own garden. Um, we were born in a world that wasn't designed to validate us. Reconciling that is, it's part of our life's work as people of color. Um, we have everything we need though. As I discussed, you know, my grandmother in the book, you know, a woman who had to observe Nazi POWs getting to enjoy first-class benefits and she couldn't go into the movie theater, but not see POWs during World War II. Like I said, those little bookmarks in history that, you know, you talk to some of your elders, they'll, they'll let you know, they'll hip you to what was really going on. Um, and she can be kicking at 86 and you would never know it because she's just so dynamic, just so peerless that a country's disrespect did not dissuade her. Mm. I know we live through some tough times now, but damn it, we ain't living through segregation. It's like, Lydia, you and I, we've had our <laughs> battles, but we ain't listening like we got to step off the, the sidewalk when a white person's walking toward us. Like that just inhumane shit. We're not living through that. So I take cues from people who had to battle more, mm. have more resistance. You know, we talk about the resistance, but there's no resistance like that. Having to get up every day in a world that was designed to invalidate you. Um, we still are... Mm very much in a world that is designed to invalidate us. But, you know, we can breathe a little bit more. It's a little bit more of a salubrious uh, climate than it used to be. So we really don't have any excuses, especially if they made it, we can make it. So like I said, I, I, I'm not catching nigga, but I'm catching no. I can deal with the no. Uh, and that's the best thing to do is just turn around, <laughs> sail on home, and start sewing. Mm. So. Cyrus. I literally, you see, you see me, I'm over here grabbing my face. Like I could not control myself. And one thing my father taught me that I now agree with at this point in my life is that this is going to sound bad. My dad probably was like, Lydia, when men listen, when men speak, you listen. Mm-hmm. Right now, sometimes people, you know, you can beg to differ. Some people <laughs> be like, okay, what's going on? Right. right. But like, you are one of those men. And I did not want to interject or even interrupt with any sounds of agreement, even though I definitely am in agreement with what you said, because I asked you to speak to your brothers. And let me tell you something. You dropped the mic on that one. Mm-hmm. I think you know what I said. I, I'll just I'm just going to piggyback it. We are complicit in our in our self destruction. I 
I don't want to be a hypocrite, but I, for many years, was complicit in my own destruction. Um, we live in a culture that's like, you know, we're looking for that feeling that's been blowing past us our entire lives. So I write about this in the book. You find it in a bag, you find it in a bottle. Um, but ultimately, what we do is we delay the reconciliation with ourselves. Mm. So for years, I was smoking weed every day. It was just what you did, is what I did, is what my boys did. We just smoking to forget, smoking to get to the next day. You know, uh, and there was a lot of behavior that wasn't serving me. And I realized that I was just delaying the reconciliation with myself. And that goes even farther back to high school, you know, and that Nelson Mandela quote, which it's hard for me to read it because it penetrates me so profoundly. It's our light and not our darkness that often scares us. I'm a living testament to that. For so many years, my light scared me more than anything else. And living up to my potential, these voices coming to me that I, if I had my right mind, I'm like, oh, let me just write those down. Uh, I was like, no, let me, let me, let me, let me suppress them. Let me dull them. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me. You know what I mean? Um, with a chemical, with, with with herb or whatever, you know. Uh, and so many of us, we adopt this behavior, uh, the self-destructive behavior, because it becomes the most, you know, dependable aspect of our world. We're nourished on self-destruction. Um, we observe it in our elders. We grow up around it. The abuse we witness them doling out on themselves. We eventually dole it out on ourselves. Um, and it's a really vicious way of, of living. We we live and thrive in conflict as a people. And we have to be more honest with ourselves moving forward and honoring our best selves. And as my grandmother said, not blocking the blessings. What have you learned about Cyrus in your life, in all of your shining glory? I don't even call it shining glory. I'm just like, I got, I, I'm on a generator. <laughs> I don't even have a lot of electricity. I don't know how this light is on right now. How is this light on? There's no reason for this light to be on right now. Everything that told me that I shouldn't be shining. I don't know. Um, I learned that I am a survivor. You know, I haven't necessarily thrived in my life. You know, I, I, I'm still very much an employee. I still very much have bills and all this stuff. And I haven't experienced that invigorating breath of American prosperity. But what I've learned is just like I learned from my grandmother, like nothing this world can throw at us is, is, is powerful enough to dissuade us from our journey. I mean, it gets lonely. Writing is sure as hell gotten lonely. You know, this pandemic has sort of, you know, brought a lot of things to light. Like we started talking about, you know, in the pre-interview, um, people in your world who you thought you could depend on showed their true colors. Um, the fact that you, the fact that I was able to do this with really the support of a small, small, wonderful cadre of people with my wife and my mother, you know, if you've got that, if you got a mama, mm. you've already, trust me, she's there's no greater champion that you're gonna find in your mama. If you got that, you are already ahead of the game. Um, but it really exposed like this whole pandemic and just being on lockdown and just really not seeing people, not doing things, not being out and about. It's sort of, it's forced you to look inward <laughs> in ways that you haven't. Like it's, I think that it's damn difficult for anyone to come out of this pandemic and not have grown in some way, you know, I feel like a lot of people, we just can't wait to get back out there because they maybe are avoiding that reconciliation with themselves. Mm. But I'm happy that I was able to buy back time on my life. This, you know, if I can look at anything positive to be found in this shit, it's that I was able to actually buy back a little bit more time on my life. 
um, and devoted towards things that needed to be done, like finishing this damn book. <laughs> but, I know that's right. <laughs> you know, I, I know, know that's right, and I'm so grateful for how you used your time. I'm, I'm confident mm. that someone you know tuned in is grateful for the opportunity to get to know you and to be able to continue on their journey with you, right? Whether it's through your tweets, through your book, when outside opens, through your appearances, when you're doing TED Talks and showing up on these great stages, uh, just give me a pass to one, you feel me? I want to show up too. No, sister, uh, <laughs> we're going to be together. We're going to be ease on, ease on down the road together. Okay. But yes. <laughs> okay, look, Cyrus, I want to talk to you forever. I feel like there has to be a part two. Yeah, girl, we can solve all the world's problems as long as my computer stay charged. We good. Okay, look, <laughs> but we've gotten to the point on t- this, you know what I'm saying, stop of the tour, where there's time for you to drop the mic. Now, you use the mic pretty well, but you kept picking it up and dropping it and kicking it and all these other things. And I'm so glad it still works. But when you are ready, the stage is yours. Feel free to drop the mic. A lot of our life is devoted, consumed by an unresolved past. It could be our relationships with family, significant others, romance. Um, A lot of our lives are consumed by an unreconciled past. And, you know, for years I got to a point like, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I did this. I wish I had done that. But we realized that everything that we've experienced put us in the position we are now, who we are is an amalgam of these collective experiences, the good, the bad, the barely endured. And, you know, I write about a lot of personal stuff in the book, you know, things that my mother didn't know about. And she started reading it and she called me one night and we had a really, really long um, in-depth conversation. Me and mom have great conversations usually, but this was like the most honest, transparent, wonderful, heartfelt conversation I'd ever had with my mother. And she said that she wished she could have protected me more. And, you know, I don't have children, but like, you know, as a, as a child, I only know that, that end of the relationship. And I didn't realize how much as parents, they want to protect you from the bad. Um, because you're always going to be the little baby, that little boy, that little girl. And when she said that, and she was like tearing up, I can hear over the phone. She's like, I really wish I'd have known. I wish I would have been able to protect you more. Um, And I told her, I said, Ma, if I change the things I saw, it would change the way I see. So we all are here. We survived. We are in year two of a damn pandemic. We're going to survive this. You know, but whatever torture, whatever trauma that you've been through in your life, uh, relationship wise, you know, it got you here. And I like who the fuck I am. (laughs) And if I change the things I saw, it would change the way I see. So be grateful. Be grateful. There you have it. My goodness. For those who are now in love with you, in brotherhood with you, in community with you, let them know how they can stay connected. 
Well, you know, you can always find me solving the world's problems in 280 characters or less on Twitter. So the real best way, and, you know, I interact with my people. I got my own little beehive. So at Cyrus <laughs> M. McQueen, at Cyrus M. McQueen on Twitter is probably the best way to keep keep up on me. And otherwise, I say just buy my damn book. <laughs> okay. Buy the book. Buy the book. There's a, there's, there's, trust me, uh, some of the, re- the reviews have started to come in, and they've been just overwhelmingly, earth-shatteringly positive you know as somebody said called me the voice of a generation i don't know if i believe that but i know a lot of people who are just saying that this book has changed their lives it's changed their perspectives and they think it should be several people have said they think it should be mandatory reading in colleges and in curriculums in high school as well so i'm just happy that folks are picking up what i'm putting down and i really like i said i i was merely a conduit so if you want the truths (laughs) those those (laughs) You know, those grand truths, I, I packed them into 422 pages. So, oh, okay. Look, get you a man who can write and knows his stuff. Okay. But this man is taken. Um, but you are such a great example of manhood, of Black manhood. So, I'm so grateful for how you showed up. And look, if you want to stay connected, Um, Here on the Get My Life Tour, visit our digital home, thegetmylifetour.com. Connect on social at the Get My Life Tour. And if you'd like to stay connected with me journalistically, be sure to do so at Lydia T. Blanco on social platforms or visit my site, lydiatblanco.com. Look, Cyrus McQueen, I just had to let it breathe. I had to let it breathe. That's all I was going to say. All I was going to say is your name, okay? Look. I cannot wait until the next stop of the tour, but I hope you got exactly what you needed on this one. Okay. I know I got my life. I hope you did too. And so the next time it has been real peace. Mm-hmm.